This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning in Proverbs 3, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance on our study. Father, the imperative of our study in Proverbs is to acquire wisdom, to acquire wisdom and to live a life that glorifies you based upon uh, the wisdom that we've acquired through a study of your word, and that above all things we are to uh, buy wisdom and sell it not. Father, challenge us today with the fact that we need to elevate our priority in the study of your word that wherever we might be in our own spiritual life, we need to ratchet that up a little bit. That nothing is more important in life than to take in your word, to let it fill our soul, shape our thinking, and transform our character. And it is on that basis then that we are able to glorify you through the way in which we face and handle the vicissitudes of life. Father, we pray, too, that uh, as we study this morning that God the Holy Spirit will help us to see application in our own lives and that we might come to a greater understanding of the significance of these passages with reference to our own Christian life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Proverbs chapter 3, and the emphasis in this last half of the chapter is on the value and the benefits of wisdom, the value and the benefits of wisdom. In the first part of the chapter, in verses 1 through uh, 18, the focus was on how to be blessed, the blessing in life that comes from wisdom. This is becomes part of the summary uh, exhortation and the conclusion at the end of the chapter in verses 33 through 35. I want to direct your eyes to those last three verses before we begin because this is is what this section uh, drives toward. Verse 33 says that the curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, and in contrast, so this is an antithetical parallelism, in contrast he blesses the home of, of the just. So that connects what are, what's said in verses 19, 19 through 32 to the theme of this, this chapter, which is on, on blessing. Verse 34 states, surely he scorns the scornful, but God gives grace to the humble. 
And so that is the way in which he blesses the righteous and a way in which he judges. That idea of curse isn't, uh, I often think that's, that's an old English word. We still use it a lot in theology, but most people today don't really understand that. It's not a curse like a juju black magic curse. It is really a, a word that means judgment on something. And so in this context, there's a judgment of divine discipline on the house of the wicked, that is the home, the life. The house stands for all of the, uh, everything involved in the life and the family of the wicked person, brings divine discipline upon the home. And in contrast, there's blessing upon the home of the just. The long-term result is then stated in verse 35, the wise shall inherit glory. Notice the concept there of inherit. That's a possession. That's the ultimate concept of, uh, of this, the word for inherit in the Old Testament is, is a possession, something that someone owns. And in contrast, there's shame as the legacy of fools. The contrast is between inheritance and legacy, so they parallel the concept. But the fool is, of course, the one who has rejected wisdom and rejected God's grace. So what is it that we are to do? Why is it so important, as the writer of Proverbs says, to study wisdom? That takes us to the verse 19. 19 and 20 form a quatrain, four lines that focus on the same thing. We have several quatrains in this section. It's four lines focusing on the same topic, and that is the topic of wisdom uh, in terms of divine wisdom. Wisdom often in Proverbs is personified. Uh, wisdom represents the that aspect of God's omniscience in terms of its outworking in what he creates. Uh, wisdom is his uh, infinite knowledge that enables him to create what he creates with uh, perfect uh, beauty, uh, which has to do with aesthetics and perfect functionality. And the only reason things may seem less than perfect is because of of sin. But God does what he does according to a standard in his thinking, which is wisdom. And as I pointed out before, wisdom is the concept of skill in application. This theme is emphasized in several other passages in Scripture, such as Psalm 104, verse 24. O Lord, how manifold are your works in wisdom or by wisdom, it's really an instrumental sense there that God uses wisdom in his creation. In wisdom, you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. I want you to notice that both in Psalm 104 as well as in Proverbs 3, and again we'll see it in Proverbs 8, creation is a foundational doctrine in the Scripture. I emphasize that because uh, of some conversations that I've had with folks over the years, Christians, people who believe they are committed Christians, doctrinal believers who are concerned about evangelism, but somewhat mistaken and uh, misdirected in their thinking. Uh, I've had several of these conversations. I've had other pastors talk to me about conversations they've had with people say, well, you know, don't muddy the water when you're evangelizing somebody with some sort of controversial doctrine like creation. 
as if creation is somehow secondary uh, to evangelism. And there are people who think, just give them the gospel. But as I pointed out in our Acts study in relation to Paul's uh, presentation of the gospel in Acts 14 to the people in Lystra who came out of a pagan Greek background, his starting point with them was creation and understanding who the God is that Paul was uh, proclaiming that he is the creator of the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, that creation is not some ancillary doctrine, but creation is always going to be a uh, controversial doctrine with unbelievers because they have believed some form of a myth that everything just came into existence by chance or happenstance or whatever, and creation is, is not that uh, uh, not not according to the Bible. That's just another myth. You often hear uh, people, uh, pundits, sometimes on television, uh, talk about aspects of the Bible that are indeed myth, and they buy into uh, liberal uh, theology at that point, uh, which runs counter sometimes to other things that they, they profess. But this is part of a culture where we have elevated rationalism and empiricism, and by that I mean human thinking apart from any divine revelation, either based on in empirical uh, studies or uh, rational philosophy apart from the Word of God, that have uh, then developed systems of thought that are used to judge and evaluate uh, scripture. Uh, there's a commentator on Fox News, Bill O'Reilly, who in uh, recent weeks has stirred up a little bit of controversy because he referred to uh, those people who are against uh, uh, homosexual marriage are just a bunch of Bible thumpers. And uh, one of the um, uh, <clears throat> associate members of the congregation had, wrote him this last week and said, well, if you don't get your absolute values... Uh, from uh, from the Bible, where do you get them? And, and he's making a very good point that you get your understanding of what is right and what is wrong from some source. You, source. you either get it from a transcendental source outside of creation or you derive it from some aspect of creation. And if you're going to derive it from some aspect of creation, uh, who's going to determine which aspect of creation is the source of right or wrong? And that's where we are as a culture in both modernism and now postmodernism is an unwillingness to uh, understand uh, the source of absolutes. Every time somebody says something is right or something is wrong, they are appealing to some external transcendental sense of uh, absolute right or wrong, and that has has a source in something. Now, uh, Mr. O'Reilly, as a professed Roman Catholic, has gone against uh, his Roman Catholic beliefs. Uh, he gives as evidence in a, another uh, conversation that he had with someone that, uh, well, Jonah is just a myth, but then he defends the historicity of the resurrection. Now, my question to him would be, on what basis do you accept one and not the other, especially as the testimony of the Lord was that uh, Jonah, as Jonah was in the uh, belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man uh, will be in the earth for three days and three nights. And so if you reject one and accept the other, you're just being inconsistent and irrational. 
Furthermore, there's a failure on the part of his education, and he's a fairly educated individual, but that there are several historical examples within the last couple of hundred years of sailors on whaling boats, fishing vessels who went over, over the side and were swallowed by large fish and survived and were rescued. And after a period of time in the belly of the fish, they came out rather bleached from the stomach acids of the fish, which gives us some indication that that was probably the case with Jonah, that when he was um, vomited out of the mouth of the the, uh, great fish that God had prepared for him onto the beach and uh, somewhere along the Mediterranean, that he came out looking pretty much like an albino, just bleached white, which would have uh, been quite a sensation to see and would given him instantly given him an audience to whom he could preach the gospel. So God is a multitasker. But um, <laughs> we see that creation is not a secondary, ancillary issue because it's fundamental to understanding who God is. And we can't just say, well, we believe God created without some sp- specificity as to how he created, and that's given to us in Scripture, and it's uh, reflected upon in the passage that we have before us in Proverbs 3.19. What we see here is the principle that, <clears throat> that if God used wisdom, and to put it in a little more anthropomorphic sense, if God needed to use wisdom to create the world, then don't you think you might need to use wisdom to live in the world? That's the basic point here. God, in his, in his omniscience, used wisdom as the means by which he created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. So if God is, it's necessary for God to use wisdom, then uh, don't you think it's, uh, it's critical for you and I to learn wisdom and to make it the foundation of our lives. This is the point in the first two verses here. Uh, The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the depths were broken up and clouds dropped down the dew. The first three lines, two in verse 18 and the first line in verse 20, are roughly parallel. We're told uh, that the subject is the Lord in, ver- in the first line, and then he is the assumed subject, uh, this assumed uh, performer of the action, and the, the three lines, each stating the means or instrument by which God created, by wisdom in the first line, by understanding in the second line, and by knowledge in the third line. And as we see in the poetry of, of Proverbs, these three terms, wisdom, and understand, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, even though they have some distinction to them, knowledge, uh, as I often say, information isn't knowledge, Knowledge is and wisdom. Uh, in Proverbs, knowledge is often parallel to wisdom and also to understanding, even though in more technical, uh, more technical literature, these terms would be slightly different. Knowledge being, uh, understanding of the, a full understanding of the information, knowing it. Understanding would be the ability to use it and discern what needs to be used in one way or the other because that's the sense of uh, the word uh, uh, 
for understanding, and wisdom then emphasizes the skillful application of that. So wisdom assumes the presence of understanding and knowledge, but in the parallelism of the poetry, these are used in a synonymous manner. The uh, two verbs that are used in uh, Proverbs 3.19, founded and established, have to do with, uh, first of all, the word found has to do with the, like the foundation stone in the temple. It's the, the laying the foundation of a house. It's the, it's the beginning process of the, cre- the work of creation. And then the, the second word that's used there, uh, established is used parallel to that, that God sets this up. The, the thrust of this is that there is a stability in creation, a certainty in creation. That uh, we, and this is the, really the foundation of science. Modern science, ironically enough, is built on a foundation of Christians who were scientists in the 16th and 17th and 18th centuries. Many of those founders of modern science uh, operated on the principle that creation was knowable and we could investigate it and we could develop understanding of, of permanent laws in creation because they understood that God had built these into creation and because God uh, sustained the universe and sustained the earth, we could count on these laws being just as true tomorrow, next week, and the next week as they have been in the past. And so uh, the, the very basis for knowledge in modern science came out of a Christian or a biblical uh, presupposition about knowledge. And that's what the writer of Proverbs is emphasizing here, is that because God created everything, there is a certainty and a stability in the creation. And so we can count upon that. And just as there is certainty and stability in the physical realm, we can extrapolate from that and make application to the spiritual realm that the principles of apply to life from the, from the scripture apply to relationships, apply to society, apply to economics, all of these different areas that, that if we base our thinking upon the word of God, that there is stability and certainty in those areas as well. And so we can move from the physical and the known to the more abstract and the more unknown. And because God oversees all aspects of creation, there is stability in understanding how he has structured uh, the universe. In Proverbs 8, and we will get there uh, at some point, there is an extended uh, uh, reflection upon creation. I just thought I would read through this as a way of expanding on these two verses here in terms of the emphasis of creation. Beginning in verse 25, Before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. I is wisdom in this section. Wisdom is personified as someone who is speaking, calling uh, the the creatures, calling the human race to pay attention to to her and to uh, utilize her. So before the hills, a point here being that before there was a an earth, wisdom existed. Not that wisdom is apart from God, 
But wisdom resides in the very omniscience of God himself. Therefore, wisdom is eternal. Verse 26, while as yet he had not made the earth or the fields or the primal dust of the world, when he prepared the heavens, I was there. While he drew a circle on the face of the deep, indicating uh, the limitation of water. Remember, God divided the waters uh, from the land. First, he divided the waters above in Genesis 1 from the waters below. And then he divided the waters from the dry land. Uh, This is what is uh, emphasized here. He drew a circle on the face of the deep, indicating a limitation of the oceans and the waterways. Uh, Verse 28, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, uh, that's the waters above and the fountains of the deep, the separation of the waters above and the waters below in Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 3 and following. Uh, when he assigned to the sea its limit. See, there's a uh, parallel there to when he drew a circle on the face of the deep back in verse 27. Uh, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters would not transgress his command. So we can have a certainty today that the waters, even though there are times when there are floods, uh, generally speaking, there's a limitation to what will happen in terms of water. One of the uh, scare, scare factors in those who are uh, proclaiming the myth, and it is a myth, trust me, the myth of global warming is that the, as the polar ice caps melt, then the level of the waters in the oceans will rise and flood the uh, the coastal plains in New York and Washington, D.C., and Houston and New Orleans will all be uh, underwater. And so they scare everybody uh, with this. Well, first of all, there we, we can measure that there's been an ebb and flow of melting and freezing at the uh, at the polar caps over the centuries. And this does not cause... Uh, a rise in the ocean. You can do a little experiment when you get home. You can uh, fill up a tumbler with ice, and then you can fill it with water or iced tea or whatever your favorite beverage is, and then you can just sit there and let the ice melt and see if when the ice melts, if the water or iced tea or whatever overflows the top of the glass. If it doesn't overflow the top of the glass, and what you've discovered is a basic concept in physics that uh, reflects the fact that God has set the limits on the waters. And so there's no reason to be afraid of global warming. And it also tells you that anybody who espouses global warming, in the words of the Proverbs, is a fool and shouldn't be in public office because they need to be uh, educated a little bit and, uh, and have their job redefined. So verse uh, 30, then I was beside him, wisdom, as a master craftsman. Such a great imagery there that we have of God from the very beginning as a craftsman using all the knowledge that he has to create something uh, of beauty. I mean, this, this to me is really the foundation of developing a biblical theology of, uh, of beauty, starting from the whole concept of, of wisdom. And so God is pictured as this master craftsman uh, constructing, building, developing the earth and the universe. Uh, verse 31, rejoicing, uh, oh, the conclusion of verse 30, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in his inhabited world, the end result of the Genesis 1 creation week, and my delight was with the sons of men. 
And so we have, again, a, a, over and again in Scripture, in almost every book of the Bible, there are these references to the creation. So it's not something that's just sort of stuck away in this, in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, as if, well, that's just the foundation myth, and we can take out our uh, razor blade or our scalpel, and we can just slice off those 11 chapters, and then the rest of the Bible we can take and, and make sense from. But if you read through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, there are uh, allusions to the creation, to God as the creator, to the way in which God created all through the rest of the Bible. So you not only have to cut out the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you basically have to go through and slice out sections of almost every book in the Bible uh, in order to preserve a non-biblical doctrine of creation. So creation is foundational to everything else in the Scripture. So when we witness, sometimes it's not like we're trying to create a distraction with somebody, but unbelievers need to, to recognize who it is that we are speaking about when we talk about God and Jesus, that this isn't just you know, an amorphous deity that you can generate out of the emotions of your own soul, but this is the unique creator God of the universe, and as such, uh, he has the right to uh, define everything in creation, including sin and, and salvation. Now, from this foundation, uh, stating the value of wisdom to God in the creation in verses 19 and 20, the writer of Proverbs then goes to <clears throat> develop and deduce some exhortations or challenges from this principle. It goes like this. If God used wisdom in order to create everything in the universe and everything that we experience in life, if God used wisdom to do that, and therefore you need to use that wisdom, how valuable should it be to you? This is what is expressed in the uh, command of verse 21. So verse 21 gives us a a general mandate on the importance of wisdom. Uh, from the father to the son, my son, let them not depart from your eyes. Now, what he means by that is the eyes are the gate, visual gate into the soul. And we learn through our hearing and from what we read. And so often the eyes and the ears are used as really a, a metaphor for what passes through them into the soul. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prays to the Father, let the eyes of our uh, mind be enlightened. And so there's this idea that we this is how we initially perceive things is through our eyes or through our ears. So when the writer says, let them not depart from your eyes, he's basically saying continuously focus on the wisdom of God's word. And then he says, keep sound wisdom and discretion. So there's two commands here. First, to let them not depart. That's a negative. Don't forget these. Don't let them get out of your sight. And second, it's a positive command 
to keep sound wisdom and discretion. Now, we've run into this word before, natsar. It's used in parallel in, in Hebrew, in, in Proverbs, with shamar. Shamar is the same word that's used back in Genesis 1-2 when God told uh, Adam to uh, guard and tend the garden. That's the word for guard there. So these are used as uh, synonymous parallels in, in Proverbs. And natsar means to watch, to watch over something, to keep it, to guard it, to maintain it, to protect it, and to preserve it. So the focus here is to make a priority of maintaining in your soul sound wisdom and discretion. Discretion is the uh, application of wisdom in different circumstances and situations in life. So this is the priority that is set forth here in this section of Proverbs. We are commanded to uh, don't let, don't forget this. Don't let, don't get so busy that it departs from your focus. Always keep wisdom and doctrine before you and then maintain it as vital to your life. And it will produce certain results. And in one sense, the rest of the chapter uh, defines some of those results. It's defined in a couple of different ways. You have uh, results expressed in the next uh, two verses, which are another quatrain. Uh, and the results are indicated by uh, the use of the word for at the beginning of verse 26 and the use of the word so in the beginning. I mean, uh, oh, excuse me, I got... Uh, uh, shouldn't have put Proverbs 26 there. Uh, just look at Proverbs 22. So they will be life to your soul and grace to your neck. Then you will walk safely in your way and your foot will not stumble. Those two verses, 22 and 23, express the uh, results here. The first verse, so they will be life to your soul and grace to your neck. So the result of this uh, begins with focusing on Life on the abundance of life, the quality of life. Uh, they, that is wisdom and discretion. That's the reference today. They will be life to your soul. You will live like you should live and experience the fullness of life as God intended in contrast to living like a dead person or a spiritually dead person. There will be life to your soul and grace to your neck. Uh, <clears throat> you can turn back uh, one page to one nine. We see this imagery of the neck several times in these first uh, three chapters. Uh, the emphasis in verse 8 of chapter 1, to the son, to hear the instruction of the father and do not forsake the law of the mother, for they will be, that is the instruction of wisdom, will be a graceful ornament on your head and chains about your neck. And so this is, as I pointed out at the time, a metaphor of protection. This enhances your life on the positive side, but also is a sign of protection for the individual, the sign of a, the, the necklace there being a sign of protection uh, around the person's life. In uh, chapter uh, 3, verse 3, we see this emphasized again. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Again, the neck is standing really uh, metaphorically for the whole person. And by binding it, wisdom around your neck, it is a metaphor of protection for the person's life, for the person's thinking. And so uh, the result of keeping wisdom and discretion is that, first of all, that it produces life 
and it produces grace or beauty in the life of the individual believer. The second area of of, uh, result is in verse 23, and this is emphasized again as as a result by the word then. Then you will walk safely in your way, and your foot will not stumble. You'll walk safely in your way, and your foot will not stumble. Uh, emphasizes security, and this is expanded upon in uh, verse 24. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. And on into verse, uh, oh, the second half of the verse, yes, you will lie down, and your sleep will be sweet. You will walk safely. So the emphasis on the one hand is a result of wisdom is that we can have a fullness of life, a capacity for life and joy and happiness that we can't have apart from wisdom. All you get is a sham. All you get is superficial flashes flashes of emotional uh, excitement, but you don't have real lasting happiness that can enable you to handle uh, the challenges of life, whether things are, are good, whether it's adversity or things are bad and you're handling uh, ad- adversity or whether it's things are good and you're handling prosperity. So we also bring security. You will walk safely in your way and your foot will not stumble. If you make a commitment in your thinking to apply the Word of God in every situation and every circumstance, then it means that you will have security in life. And as a result, as you live out your life, you will not stumble. Uh, You will walk safely in your way. That's a picture of, of the course of your life. Walking is often a metaphor for living the life or how you conduct your life, one uh, metaphor used both in biblical passages and non-biblical passages. Uh, And your foot will not stumble, indicating that you won't fall into egregious error. You won't make mistakes if you are have your mind set on the Word of God. Furthermore, it will benefit you in many uh, helpful, helpful ways and healthful ways. In verse 24, when you lie down, you will not be afraid. You're not going to wake up in the middle of the night with panic attacks. You're not going to be overwhelmed with worry and anxiety over different situations and circumstances in life. And that's different from saying you're not concerned. We're all in jobs and careers and things we're doing where we get, we know we have big projects we're working on or things we're involved in that we have to pay attention to and that we think through and they, they sit heavy on our mind. But at some point we have to learn to cast our cares upon the Lord because He cares for you. It doesn't mean that we don't sort of wrestle mentally with some of the tasks before us. That's part of a normal process of doing a job and doing it well. But there's a point where we are taking control away from God and we it, it consumes us so that we can't be relaxed anymore and it impacts even our sleep. And so this is the uh, application here. When you lie down, you won't be afraid. You'll be able to just close your eyes at night and go right to sleep. Now, there may be other reasons at play why you don't go right to sleep, but we're just focusing on the one which relates to uh, uh, worry and anxiety. The second half of the verse says, Yes, you will lie down, and your sleep will be sweet. This is a tremendous promise within the framework of this proverb, that as you focus on the Word, you will be relaxed, and therefore when you sleep, 
you can rest and have a wonderful time of rest. Verse 25 gives us the first of a series of six uh, prohibitions, six negative commands. This one flows out of what has just been said about having being mentally relaxed and not being afraid. And so the command in verse 25 is, Do not be afraid of sudden terror, nor of trouble from the wicked when it comes. Don't be so concerned about this that it consumes your life. Ultimately, our steps are ordered by the Lord. We can take certain measures of safety and security, locking our doors, having a security system, uh, various other things that you can do to uh, ensure a certain amount of security in your home. But if the uh, evildoers want to break in, and they do, remember that's as well under the uh, command of God, then we have to take whatever measure we can in order to uh, deal with the problem. In some cases, that has to do with principles of home defense. I always like to remember, though, the story of a, of a wonderful, uh, godly woman who was the cook at Camp Penile for many, many years and the grandmother of a couple of good, good friends of mine. And she lived in a, in a trailer behind her son's house over in the kind of the south side of Houston. And one night she woke up and there was a uh, burglar in her bedroom and uh, a robber and he uh, had a gun and she said you know he he was demanding her valuable she said well I really don't have anything here that that you would think of as valuable but I do have one thing and if you just sit down at at the end of the bed I'll tell you all about Jesus And so she proceeded to witness to him for the next 15 minutes, after which he got up and left. So there are more than one way to handle these kinds of things, but there might very well be a way of thinking where God has brought this person into your house for some other reason than to blow him away or send him to jail. There may be another alternative, which is to give him the gospel, just giving you those options. So the mandate here is don't be afraid of sudden terror nor of trouble from the wicked when it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence. It's an unusual word for confidence here, not one that we normally think of. It has a sense in some passages of hope or confidence. It's it's our future expectation. And because he is our confidence, we're able to handle whatever comes our way in a relaxed manner. And we have to it, it emphasizes a growth in our uh, faith rest drill, our ability to trust in him. So the uh, writer of Proverbs says, uh, the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. See, that's a parallel back to um, verse 23, that you will walk safely in your way and your foot will not stumble. So God is the one who ultimately oversees our path. We may not know what decisions to make here or there, but going back to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, when we trust in the Lord uh, with all our heart and not in our own understanding, and we acknowledge him in all our ways, then he directs our paths. He is the one who oversees things. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to do things that maybe put us in harm's way. We're going to do things that uh, and be involved in things that are, may not be the most secure, but our, our life is in God's hands, and so we relax, and he takes care of 
things, even when we uh, do some things that aren't the wisest uh, in terms of our decision-making. Now we come to the next uh, uh, quatrain, uh, or the next uh, two negative commands, rather. You have two, uh, two, two sections here. Verse 27, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due, and do not say to your neighbor. Now these are related uh, to one another. On the one hand, don't withhold good from those to whom it is due. And it gets a little more uh, personal in verse 28. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back, and tomorrow I will, I will give it. And the first part, the command is related to being someone who is uh, a giver and, and focused on helping others, not just believers, because we know from Scripture that the concept of a neighbor is not simply someone that lives next door to us or someone that we have an ongoing relationship with, maybe someone we work with. But according to uh, Luke chapter 10, when the Lord was teaching on the Good Samaritan, a neighbor is anyone who comes across our path in life. And so it is the idea here is that we are given uh, financial resources and skills and abilities that are not to, supposed to be hoarded for our own use, but that God has given us those things so that we can use them as a blessing and benefit to others. So when we have the ability to help someone, then we should use it and not out of some sense of uh, holding on to things for our security, we should help them if it is within our power to do so. And so the next development of that, verse 28, don't say to your neighbor, well, go and come back and I'll give it to you later. Basically what we're saying is is like James presents it in James 2, go, be, go away, be warm and be filled. We give them little trite sayings. We tell them, trust the Lord, knowing full well that we could do something. It might be a little inconvenient. It might cost us something, but we don't want to get involved. So I'll, I'll, I'll pray for you. Uh, rather than helping them at that particular moment. Uh, so the writer of Proverbs says we should recognize this as an opportunity from God to be a blessing in the life of others and to demonstrate the grace and the love of God in the life of those around us. Now in verse 29 and 30, we have another uh, pair of, of negative commands. Uh, first of all, in verse 29, do not devise evil against your neighbor. So in contrast to helping the neighbor, now we have the flip side, not only help him, but don't devise evil. Let's say you help your neighbor and he doesn't pay you back. Well, then don't plot uh, revenge upon your neighbor or some way to get back at them because they have not paid you back. Don't devise evil against your neighbor, for he dwells by you for safety's sake. There is a principle here related to blessing by association. There are those around us who are blessed by association with our lives, and just because they do things wrongly toward us does not in turn give us justification to retaliate uh, toward them. Uh, verse 30, do not strive with a man without cause if he has done you no harm. In other words, uh, there are times when we are to uh, 
protect ourselves in some sense against someone who is taking advantage of us, but this is wisdom in knowing when to uh, respond and when not to respond. There are certainly people out there and events out there that seek to destroy us, seek to take advantage of us, criminals who seek to defraud us, and there is a place for protection in those areas and even sending criminals to jail those who defraud us but we have to exercise wisdom in the process, and that comes only from developing a, a wealth of uh, doctrine in our soul from which we uh, discern how to apply doctrine in the individual circumstances. Verse 31 develops out of that idea. Sometimes we see the evil or wicked person, and they're prospering. David has a couple of statements in the Psalms where he says, How long, O Lord, will the wicked prosper? After a while, you may be tempted to think, Well, this guy's really getting away with it, and look at how God's prospering him. Maybe I need to do what he's doing, and uh, maybe that will help me survive uh, the coming economic collapse. Well, Scripture says, Don't envy the oppressor and choose none of his ways. Our confidence is not in these other methods, but our confidence is in the Lord who is going to uh, preserve and protect us. And then we come to the conclusion in verses uh, 32 to 34. First of all, he says, a perverse person is an abomination to the Lord. Now, we'll see about seven different places in the um, uh, in Proverbs, that talk about different things as an abomination to the Lord. An abomination is something that is offensive to God. And there are numerous sins that are listed as abomination to God. And a perverse person is someone who is twisting uh, Scripture and twisting the absolutes and the ethics of Scripture. Uh, the perverse person is offensive to the Lord, and in contrast, God's secret counsel, this is the way in which he uh, guides and directs believers in an unseen way, like an invisible hand. It's not something he's not communicating in a mystical way via some sort of internal sense of what to do. Uh, he, he's working in and through the circumstances in guiding us and directing our paths, as Proverbs 3, 6 puts it. So the secret counsel of God is with the upright, that is, the righteous one, the believer. Then we come to the conclusion here, the curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, the evil, the house, the life, everyone involved in the house of the wicked, the one who opposes God and opposes wisdom, and in contrast, he blesses, he prospers the house of the, the home of the just, the home of the righteous one. And God has a attitude of scorn towards the scornful, those who are uh, who reject Him, uh, like the fool who says in his heart there is no God. Those who act against God's uh, desires and against the commands of God, uh, God in turn uh, makes war against them. He is uh, he brings discipline and judgment upon them. But to the one who humbles himself under the mighty hand of God. God gives grace. Those who are believers, those who are studying his word, walking by his word, God is going to provide protection and grace provision for us, so we need to put our trust in him. As a result, the wise, those who have learned the word and implemented it in their lives, shall inherit glory. 
And I think that we can put that together with passages we've studied in the New Testament related to in the church age believer that when we are with the Lord in the millennial kingdom, there will be extended blessing and and our roles and responsibilities with him as opposed to those who lose inheritance at the judgment seat of Christ. And that would be related to the shame of those who have foolishly disregarded the teaching of God's word and the application of it in our lives. So the principle here is on the value of wisdom. If God needed wisdom, don't you think you need wisdom as well? With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be challenged by your word to buy wisdom and sell it not, to study your word, to make it a part of our life, to realize that this isn't optional, but this should be the foremost thing in which we devote our our thinking, that despite all the demands of our roles and responsibilities in our careers and in our homes, ultimately what will be the issue at the judgment seat of Christ is what we did with your word and how we used it and how we sought it and its application in our lives. Father, we also pray for anyone who might be here or might be listening that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny. Scripture is very clear that every single human being is born under the condemnation of sin. We're under a judicial sentence from God of spiritual death. Yet Jesus Christ died on the cross in our place. He paid the penalty for us that we would not have to pay that penalty. Sin has been paid for. The offer now is to accept the forgiveness of God. The issue is faith in Christ. Are we willing to uh, receive this offer as a free gift and trust in him, or are we still trying to somehow impress God with our own capabilities? The issue is humility, humbling ourselves and accepting the free gift of of salvation in Jesus Christ by simply believing that he died on the cross for our sins, that we might have everlasting life. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we studied today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.